It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. In today's episode, I am speaking with the remarkable Kirsty Everett. At the age of nine, Kirsty was diagnosed with ALL. After she completed the gruelling treatment, she went on to live life to the fullest. And then, at the age of 16, she heard the news that she had relapsed. The battle was much harder this time, and the odds were against her. However, Kirsty looked this challenge in the eye once again and took it head on. Kirsty discussed with me what it was like dealing with blood cancer at such a young age. 
Not only has Kirsty gone on to beat blood cancer for the second time, but she has turned her diagnosis into her purpose. Recently, she became a published author with HarperCollins. They published her memoir, Honey Blood, which is such an insightful read. I really encourage you to have a listen to this episode and even maybe go out and buy yourself a copy. So let's get into today's episode. Welcome today, Kirsty. Thank you for being here. That's okay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just, yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you so much. What we usually do um, for the start of the episode, we ask the person we're interviewing just to tell the listeners a little bit about who they are, where they're from, who's in their family and when and what they were diagnosed with. All right. So I was first diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL um, when I was nine years old. Um, I had about two and a half years of chemotherapy, had a really good, uh, I think my survival chance was about 70%. Everything went as well as it can go to having two and a half years of chemo as a kid. Then I was in remission from about the ages of 12 to 16. And then when I was just about to start year 11 in high school, so I was I was 16, my cancer came back again. Um, so I relapsed, yeah, about four and a half years after being in remission. And um, my chance of survival the second time were, were pretty bad. Um, I think it was only about 17 percent when it came back the second time it was a lot harder to get rid of and pretty much everyone thought that I was going to die um so one of the many reasons that I wrote um, my book Honey Blood was that I remember thinking as a 16 year old if I ever get through all this I am going to write a book and somehow try to turn all of this yuckiness into to something that can be helpful to other people, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. And you are based where in Australia? Um, so I, I'm in Sydney and more specifically, I am from the Sutherland Shire, born and bred please do not hold that against me. Um, and I totally fit the stereotype too. Like I have blonde hair, I have blue eyes and I married a guy that I went to primary school with as well. So some of the stereotypes about the Shire are indeed true, but but none of the bad ones apply to me. So please yeah. don't hold that against me. Never will, never will. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that insight. I think, you know, to, we haven't had somebody on the podcast that was diagnosed at such a, at such a young age. So to be able to shed some light on for onto that um to that area of childhood cancer is um what we hope to, to do today and to help give parents and listeners and even people that were diagnosed when they were young themselves and now a young adult some insight into how you've gotten through through those experiences and how you're living today so can you tell me how did you how did you feel after beating cancer the first the first time around because as you said you were you were nine years old, had a number of years, and then you relapsed at 16. Is that right? Yeah. That, well done. <laughs> a, yeah. You, you keep up better than some of my friends. Um, <laughs> um, so after I sort of, you know, we got rid of it the the first time, I was 12 years old um, and I was starting high school. So one of the things that I was 
I honestly was just so excited to be free of the hospital um, and I was also really excited to start high school because in primary school everybody knew me as, you know, like, oh, that's the girl with cancer, that's the girl that might die, that's the girl that we bully sometimes, that's the girl we call a freak. So I was, first of all, really excited, yeah, to be free of the hospital um, and to be starting high school. You know, my hair had grown back a bit. So, um, you know, I, I sort of didn't look like a sick person. And so when I was in remission for those four years before it came back again, I did that thing that we all know is true. Like we all know that we're supposed to live life to the full and do as much as we can. And I can say with total, you know, sincerity that that's absolutely what I did between the ages of 12 and 16. I could not get enough of just everything. So Mm. at school I was a massive high achiever. Um, I always tell people like I'm I'm a nerd, like I am, like I I was on the SRC at school. I did public speaking, I did debating, I did singing classes, acting classes, dancing, wasn't so great at dancing, but had a crack at it anyway. Um, I got really involved in the theatre. Um, I fell in love with um, uh, William Shakespeare and his works and performing them in the theatre. What else did I do? I went skydiving. I went swimming like with sharks and, you know, your parents kind of, if you know, when you have cancer as a little kid, sometimes yeah. they kind of let you get away with doing a few <laughs> things that maybe I remember mum being a little bit dodgy about the skydiving. I remember she I was can a bit, yeah, she, I remember she wasn't too happy, but I remember dad being like, it's cursed. She'll, she'll yeah. be fine. She's got this. Like yeah. she's been through a lot. She, yeah. yeah, she's, she'll be able to handle this one. So yeah. So for those four years that I was in remission, I, yeah, I had so many friends, like I had friends at school, I had, you know, my theatre friends and and life was absolutely brilliant. It was so full. Um, I couldn't have packed more into it. I did acrobatics as well. So I've always been sort of a gymnast, acrobatic type person on and off um, when my body lets me. Yeah. So. so was it almost like once you you got that, okay, yes, you're in remission, off you go, go live life, that you, you, as you said, you really embraced it. And I think that so many people could relate to that as how they just jump back straight back into life because you almost want to hold back onto what you, your old self, what, what pre-cancer took from you. Yeah. Um, would that be safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so before I was diagnosed, my plan was I wanted to be a gymnast when I grew up. And, um, you know, you, if you're going to do that, you know, you have to do that young. And I felt I, once you're 12 years old, like that, if you want to be a gymnast, you know, it's over. Like if you're sort of not really into it by that age. Um, so I did feel a little bit kind of, a little bit ripped off with that. But then, you know, you give yourself that mindset that, okay, maybe that wasn't the path that was supposed Mm. to play out for me. So that's why I thought, okay, well, if I can't do that, what else can I do? And that's, yeah. yeah, So I'm like, okay, well, and, and I was so amazed too, that I, you know, um, myself and, and my siblings, we all, we didn't go to fancy private school or anything. We just went to public school. And I remember thinking, this is so amazing that in a, a public school, there were all these amazing teachers who, you know, would teach like acting classes and teach debating and all of those things. And I thought, 
why wouldn't you just do all of this? Like I remember not understanding why my peers were like maybe not into it as much as I was. And do you think that, you know, because you went, as you said, you touched on that you were bullied in primary school and things like that. And then a lot of the things that as a teenager you hold on to about standing out and about being different and about, you know, you you want to be seen but also you don't want to be seen when when you're a child and teenager. Do you think that... Well, the life already threw that at you where you were, you know, people, you were, you know, different because you had leukemia. Do you think that that helps you got, take away some of those pressures when you became a teenager? Go, you know what? No, I'm going to do it. I'm going to embrace it. And I don't care what others are doing. I'm not going to, you know, be a sheep. I'm going to stand out and do what I need to do. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Like I, because I remember there being you know, like uh, it's it's so stereotypical, but sometimes stereotypes come from a place of truth. But I remember, you know, the more athletic, you know, jock type guys in my year at school sort of, you know, giving me a hard time kind of being like, oh, you're like a debating nerd or you're like the public speaking mm-hmm. geek. And I remember thinking I do not care. Like I do, like yeah. it did not, I was like, I don't care about that. Um, the only thing that I did kind of get, uh, stuck with um, from the chemo was that it stunted um, my growth really badly. So I, I'm 144 centimetres tall and I've been that height since I was 12. So I stopped sort of growing up. So um, in high school, I think everyone in year seven gets picked on about whatever is the most obvious mm. feature. Um, yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm getting picked on because I'm short, which I don't really like. Um, but you know, I was never going to be a giant anyway. All of my family are little people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're not, we're not tall. Um, but I remember just thinking it's just nice not to be, um, you know, the sick one, the cancer one, yeah. the bald one. Um, yeah. Yeah. And how did you feel, you know, as you said, you went through that, you embraced life, you jumped on board, but how did you feel different after you relapsed compared to the first time? Was there... Um, when I relapsed, so like at first, I mean, I, when I relapsed, I actually, I I knew it was coming months before, like they actually kind of said yes. And I, like, I, I knew from my time in hospital, you know, the, the cancer patients that I knew as a kid, if they were on treatment because they'd relapsed, they, they usually didn't make it. And I knew that that's what, like, I was now, you know, one of the relapse patients that everyone mm. was thinking, you're going to die. And that statistic that no one wants to be. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I always remember even my mum, like, um, saying things like, oh, you know, when you're in the hospital, you know, you spend a lot of time mm. with, you know, people. And she was like, oh, that, you know, that poor boy, like, this is his second time, like he's relapsed and giving me that look like, well, we know what's going to happen to him. Um, But, you know, I also had, you know, both times I was treated, um, I had oncologists that were both, you know, they never spoke down to me like I was a child and they were very upfront about, you know, what my chances were and what was going on. And so when I relapsed at 16, there was this part of me that, 
was like, are you kidding? Like I've done everything right. I've been living life to the full. Um, you know, I, I haven't been like a bad kid. Like I haven't been yeah. running around drinking underage or like doing anything naughty. And I was like, this is, you know, this isn't fair. Like this is like, I felt, you know, very angsty teenager, like, oh, I'm so ripped off. Um, but it didn't last very long that I felt like that. I just kind of, I don't know what happened in my mind and I, uh, you know, even after writing a book, I still struggle to articulate. Um, it wasn't a conscious decision, but somewhere in my subconscious mind, there was this kind of, well, you can all get stuffed because I, I know the odds are not in my favour but I'm going to do this. I'm going to prove all of you wrong. I'm going to keep doing all of the things that I'm doing. I'm going to keep, you know, performing on stage. I'm going to keep, you know, competing, you know, at debating competitions. I'm going to keep coming to school as often as I can. Yeah. So I just, yeah, this mindset, I don't know if, you know, maybe it was like some sort of survival thing. It was just like, well, you know, any anyone who thinks I'm not going to make it, which was pretty much everybody, um, mm. it was always like, well, I'm I'm going to show you, um, and I'm going to show you that you're wrong, and that kind of helped, sort of, I don't know, put this sort of drive behind me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And from reading in your book, um, you, you do you did have quite a different journey second time around because they were trying to find. A- a transplant um, match for you, weren't they? Because your brothers weren't a match and they decided and you they went to the register, didn't they? And that wasn't Yeah, so, I mean, how ripped off is that? So I, I've got three siblings. I've got two brothers and a sister and their bone marrow was completely useless to me. I mean, <laughs> why else do you have siblings if you can't take their, their body yeah. parts or tissues yeah. from them? Um, so, yeah, so I didn't have a match in the family and, yeah, there was no one um, on the, the bone marrow registry. So the, the best, my best chance at surviving was to have a transplant but um, my oncologist didn't want to give me an unmatched donor. She said that what she would like to try was three years of chemo, which when you're 16 years old and someone says you're going Mm. to be on chemo for three years, uh, especially after you've got into your head, okay, I'm going to have a transplant. So maybe, you know, in less than 12 months, like this will wrap itself up and I can get back on with things. So yeah, the second time I was sick, yeah, had to have three years of chemo and it, I mean, being on chemo is always bumpy, but, uh, I had a lot of really intense reactions, which, you know, often happens with the drugs. Like you don't know how your body's going to respond. So there was a lot of trial and error and getting the right combination of things in my body. So, you know, we could kill the cancer and hopefully not kill me in the process. Um, yeah. So second time was very different. So, yeah, the first time very much felt like it really did feel like because, you know, I had the most common type of sort of childhood leukemia, it did feel like they were like, okay, here's the treatment plan and we're going to follow this. And, you know, sometimes it didn't go according to the plan. But, yeah, it did feel like, yes, we've done this before. Um, But, yeah, the second time it was just like... Yeah, it felt, you know, there were times where I felt a bit like a guinea pig and yeah. there were times where I was like, oh, my gosh, like what yeah. What are they going to do with me? Like this isn't yeah. working. Like, what, you know, what's going to happen? Um, yeah. It almost sounds like the first time you're saying that you had 
the, the team had such confidence in their plan and, and the process. Mm. And then the second time it was all, almost like, oh, you know, they weren't unsure because, as you said, you didn't have a match. And then, But it sounds like you really had to rally to back yourself and be like, no, nah, I've got this. I'm going to do it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a big slog. But I'm going to beat this because, by God, I've got a lot to, it's a lot to yes. live for. Yeah. So, and and as well too, like the, um, the oncologist that, I had the second time, um, Dr. Sue Russell. I mean, she's she's a genius. She's an incredible woman. And, I mean, you know, the fact that I'm still here, I think is, you know, that's mm. just proof that even though I was somebody, you know, my, my, it was difficult to, to get rid of my cancer the second time, the fact that, you know, I'm still here and that she was able to figure it out. I mean, obviously she would have, you know, brainstormed. I'm, sh- I'm sure she had some brain, I'm hoping she had some brainstorming yeah, she sessions. Did. She- it wasn't just her alone in a yeah. room with a whiteboard. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think she did an incredible job, you know, especially too. I mean, can you imagine their job like dealing with a 16-year-old who is on chemo for the second time and, you know, like teenagers can, they can tell when you're, you know, lying or not being 100% yeah. honest and and she was absolutely incredible with me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, she sounded like she treated you like, you know, as a human and yeah. it respected your body. And I think that that message in that you've said that, yeah, you didn't have a, a match but you got through it because sometimes that's people's biggest fear is, oh, my God, there's no there's no match out there in the world. But to say you are living proof that it's a different slog and it's hard but here you are, didn't have an, you know, a bone marrow transplant, went through chemotherapy and here you are today, you know. Yeah, I know. It's – I still – yeah, like I, um, I actually turn in about. Oh, I think it's less than two weeks. I turn, I turn forty, and I honestly, I'm like, oh my gosh! Like I, I never, I never thought that I, I would live this long. Like this is, yeah. um, this is incredible, and it, it really is. Like it, it sounds cheesy, but. It, it is a miracle that I'm I'm still here. Um, no, I celebrate that miracle. It's, um, yeah, it, it's still like I still like find my like I scratch my head and go, oh wow, like all of that happened and and I'm still going. Like my body's yeah. still here. Like it's yeah. yeah so <laughs> yeah. and so is there anything um, that you found helpful when it came through getting both both of the treatments? So in terms of, I mean. One of the things with being really sick is that you, even, you know, when you feel rubbish, like you, you have a lot of sort of downtime, I guess. And I was really lucky, you know, I had parents that from a really young age had instilled in me like a love of reading and appreciation of the written word. And so the the first time that I was on chemo, I just... I just remember reading so much, like, you know, just when I, I would be in hospital and I would just read and read and read and I, I kind of feel sad for anyone who's on chemo who doesn't love to read because it's like, you know, you've got a lot of time to, to pass and yeah. there's only so much Netflix you're going to be able to um, to work your way through. Yeah. So, you know, having a love of reading was really helpful to me. The second time that I was sick... I guess I just accumulated more things that I loved. So, you know, I I still performed in the theatre. Um, I still 
you know, I still read a lot of books. I still, you know, I I did my HSC while I was on chemo and while everyone was saying, oh, gosh, you're, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> like you, we, we thought you were going to be dead six months ago. Um, I, I think we're really lucky to live in a world where there's lots of creative people like musicians and artists, you know, writers, people like that. I feel they're like they save people's lives because when you're really sick, things like listening to music or, I mean, I can't draw. The only thing I can draw is butterflies, but, hell, I I drew thousands of butterflies, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and when I was well enough, like I, I would get myself to the theatre. I would watch theatre. I would perform in it when I could and, um yeah, just anything creative. Like we're, like I said, we're so lucky that the world is, it's, it's actually overflowing. Mm. There's so many talented people that sort of never, you know, fully make it and we, we don't hear from them. But I just, yeah, the second time I was sick, it was just like sort of I kind of saturated myself with all creative things, all artistic things and, and even things, like I said, like I wasn't great at drawing and didn't really know much about art. But started going to art galleries and started, you know, learning about artists and reading, you know, pretty much anything that I could get my mm. hands on just so my brain was alive and and working and engaged and most importantly um, distracted because I think sometimes one of the things that um, I, I don't know if I don't know what what um, anyone in uh, what a psychologist would say about this, but for me, sometimes pretending that I wasn't sick was one of the most helpful things that I did. Um, yeah. You know, if my if I was in the company of my friends and we'd be goofing around listening to music, um, and in those times, I I would forget that I was sick and I'd pretend that I wasn't sick and. Yeah, it must have helped because I'm I'm still here. So yeah, yeah. I think and I think so many people can relate to that because it's it's just giving you that escape, isn't it? It's giving you that escape of what is going on in reality, and being creative can do that too. Also, and it's you're right. It's about tapping into into what you love and what makes and what lights you up. Yeah, and I think we're such in a in a lucky space in this day and age to be able to have the internet at our fingertips and COVID has opened worlds up um, more than we ever thought. I know you can go and you can go to the art gallery in Paris, you know, virtually <laughs> now and things like that where we could never do that before. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, definitely here you say being creative and bringing in that light into your life is so important to help pass the tough times. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, when you are like a child or a teenager on chemo, you get told, you know, a few times you get told, you know, if you want to drop out of school, if you don't want to worry about it, you can put it on hold. I'm really glad that I didn't do that. Like either of the times that I was sick that I kept, I kept up with my schooling. I ended up doing extremely well, which, which surprised me. Like, <laughs> because sometimes, you know, I'd be studying and be you know out of my mind on opiates and not even so I don't even know how I was retaining information like and have um, a chemo brain (laughs) um yeah so I'm I'm really glad that that I did that I guess too if you know if I was to drop out of school I guess the only thing that you know I then all you've got to focus on is the fact that well you're you're sick like you're you're a sick person and there's nowhere for you to be but 
the hospital or home and I don't it gave know. you purpose. Yeah. It gave you something to look forward for the future and to, and to be, you know, excited about, even though there may be some teenagers listening going, oh, but it's schoolwork. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's your future though, isn't it? You know, yeah. 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 And so what, so you, as you said before, you, you have such a love for the written word and what did, made you decide to write a book? I was actually speaking to someone recently and they were talking about being worried about um, their child like uh, during COVID and everything like that. I'm, I'm an English teacher um, and, um, and I, I remember like I, I told them this quote and it said something along the lines of if you want intelligent children, give them books and if you want more intelligent children, give them more books. And I really think even though that sounds like a, you know, it doesn't sound like a very fancy, sophisticated sort of thing, I think the more you read, the more you open your mind, the more um, I think people that read a lot are usually people that their sense of empathy continues to grow. Um, it doesn't stop growing, which to me, I, I think that's magical. Um, I think that's incredible. I especially, I mean, with, with my book, like I've, I've written about things that actually happened, but, but these people who create whole worlds and whole characters and things like that for us to lose ourselves in, I'm like, it blows my mind how talented these people are. And mm. yeah, I remember I actually first had the idea to write this book when I was really sick and when I was thinking, oh, I'm probably the, the first idea that came when I was thinking about writing was I was going to write the book because I thought I was going to die and I wanted to write some stories for my friends and family. That's Mm. how the book started and I was about 17 at the time and I went and I did writing classes with Patty Miller. She's incredible. If you ever want to write your life story, she's your your woman. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And... um, yeah, but obviously I, you know, I stayed alive and so I thought I'll put the writing aside and I went off to uni and did a couple of degrees and things like that. And then it was about, well, I think it was about five or six years ago now, there was this thing from the New South Wales Writers Centre and it said, oh, have you ever thought of writing a book? Like send us 50 pages and like we'll help you out. And I sent something in that was, I'm so embarrassed now that anybody <laughs> saw that. And I never expected to hear back from them. I didn't even, I didn't, I don't think I even sort of uh, checked what I'd read, um, which is really unusual for me to not do that. And um, yeah, I heard back from them saying, you know, you've really got something here. And yeah, it just sort of made me go, okay, I, you know, I always kind of wanted to maybe write a book and there's, there's so many swear words coming to mind right now that I'll keep for myself. I'm trying to look for the right word to describe cancer, but it is so it is so brutal in so many ways, um, not just to the person who has it, but to you know their family and, and everybody connected to that person. It is is so harsh. And writing the book when I started sort of really focusing and putting my head down and doing it a few years ago, once again, I had this mindset of I'm not going to let this thing just be this bad thing. I'm going to turn this 
into something that is good. I'm going to turn, yes, I have memories that are not pleasant, but I'm going to somehow make these good and I'm going to somehow turn them into something that can help other people, that can make other people feel good. And uh, I'm still surprised that, that HarperCollins <laughs> thought I was good enough to publish. Like I, I still pinch myself. I still ask them, are you sure you didn't publish me because, like, you pitied me, like you feel sorry for me? And they obviously just think I'm mad, which is fine. Um, <laughs> yes, and but- having read the book myself that it is, it's in your message as you've, you know, articulated of being able to lose yourself in the word of the word, that's what you've done for the reader and for someone to be able to to relate and then, as you said, grow their empathy for other people and I think also to give parents an insight as to what it's like for a child to to go through this and to grow up with this and experience, you know, cancer at school and with peers and even and how siblings' relationships and dynamics are also affected and um, impacted on um a diagnosis so your book beautifully did that and I think HarperCollins they were right in in, <laughs> in publishing that story yeah yeah but yeah it's um yeah do you think that you drew on it because um you started writing because you as you said like that was something that you really honed in on and was a survival a survival mechanism for you when you went through treatment yeah, I look, I, I honestly don't know. Like I wish I had something, you know, really sophisticated and profound to say mm-hmm. to that. But it was just this simple idea of there were certain things that happened when I was sick and it was almost like the drive to write them down was bigger than me, um, which yeah. I know I'm only short so that's not hard. <laughs> but um there was this drive to write them down. It was like these things need to be written down, but they need to be written down because there's things that people can take away from this that will be helpful, that will be good. Mm. And one of the things that um, I absolutely loved, I mean, the, the book's only been out for about four months. And, you know, obviously I'm I'm not a fat, like I'm not Delta Goodrum. I'm sure mm. her her book is doing far better than mine at the moment. Um, but um, one of the things that I've loved about putting Honey Blood out is that I've heard from people who are now adults who, you know, they either had cancer as a child or as a teenager and they're saying, thank you for telling the truth about what it's actually like to be sick and I've had people thank me for, yeah, for, for being honest. And, you know, people have said, thank you for not, there are, um, I, I won't name them, but there are, you know, a couple of novels out there that have been, you know, written that have, you know, characters in them with cancer and they're, they're so unrealistic, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, um, I, I think like I'm I'm kind of glad that sometimes with the book it's one of those things that you don't know if you've done a good job or not and I have days where I think oh ha- have I done anything good has it helped anyone and it's the days where you know I hear from someone saying oh thank you for like writing this because mm. that's exactly what it's like and you didn't romanticize it you were really honest um but it also didn't you know um the book um you know, even though it's got cancer in it, 
it's not going to leave you when you, like if you read it, you're not going to read it and, you know, feel all depressed and, you know, yeah. miserable at the end because if I'd done it that way, then uh, then cancer would have won, wouldn't it? So yeah, um, you took control. Yes. It's almost you were writing out traumas and things that happened to you if you were taking control and I think anybody can do that journaling is such a powerful tool to write out you know what you've experienced and what you've gone through to release that throughout you know to release it from your body and I think that that's some in some respect of what you you did with your book cool <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so what was life like for you after you beat cancer for the second time and you know what have you been uh, what have you been up to since you were finally able to beat it? Um, so after after we finally got rid of it the second time, um, I my, my body was in pretty bad shape. Like it was, I imagine um, it, it had taken quite a beating. Um, so what's it was what three years of chemotherapy and then what? How many when you were nine? It was it was about two, two and a half years. Yeah. Um, so what's I'm very bad at maths, but that's almost like five years of intense chemotherapy yeah yeah so um and especially to the second time they they had to hit me like quite hard Mm. um and um one of the things that I had to have a lot of were um lumbar punches just in case anyone doesn't know what it is that's when um you have the chemo like injected like right into your lower spine I had to have a lot of that done um it's very common for children um yeah and it's you know what it's it's a horrible procedure um and unfortunately it it was one of the things that seemed to work for 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 me and so um I had a lot of those so had years of still being in pain from having all of those lumbar punches and you know but but even though my body wasn't in great shape i you know i went to uni i had no idea like i <laughs> i was just kind of like oh my gosh i'm still alive so um i i actually i think this might make me like a quite quite a normal kind of teenager i had no idea in terms of what career i would do um mm. so in that sense you know the cancer didn't <laughs> teach me what career to pick you know i did really well in my hsc and i i could have done anything but i um actually chose to do a bachelor of arts at sydney uni everyone bags out um arts degrees it was one of the best things i ever did because i was able to study things that I was interested in, things that I was drawn to. I could kind of eliminate, you know, there were certain things I tried, like I tried studying like linguistics and I went, oh, hang on, this, this isn't no. for me. Yeah. Um, you know, so I got to figure out what I was good at, um, what I was most passionate about. And then after I finished that degree, um, I was accepted into the Masters in Teaching program um, that Sydney Uni had at the time. And so I did that and became a high school uh, teacher. And yeah, I'm I'm still a high school teacher. I um, I teach mostly English, but I am qualified to teach drama and Aboriginal studies as well. Um, but I've mostly taught English, and I am married to. Oh my gosh, I, he he mustn't be human. I swear to God. <laughs> um, I'm married to an absolutely incredible man. Um, his name is Ben and um, we've known each other um, for a very long time 
and he's seriously like I don't tell people that he's my husband I call him my happily ever after man um, because that's that's seriously what he is he is yeah I couldn't have dreamed up you know I remember I used to I used to read you know a fair few romance novels (laughs) and um, I couldn't have dreamed up a better man for myself. Um, so that's sort of what I've been doing and then writing the book and um, I have always, you know, anytime uh, any sort of cancer organisation has asked me to help in my capacity as like just speaking. I don't like sometimes people have used the word like motivational speaker, which mm-hmm. I find really cheesy. It's so like I'm more I'm more like being called, oh, she like tells cancer stories. She's like yeah. the storyteller of cancer stuff. Um so I've been doing I've been doing that since I was about 14 years old um, and I still do that to this day. I got an award from the governor about 15 years ago just, yeah, have never shut up talking about, um, you know, trying to get people just to be aware that cancer is out there and um, everyone knows somebody who's had it or has lost someone and, you know, people that go through it like we we need support and, you know, we need mm. money. But, you know, if you're not going to get those things if people don't have knowledge and awareness. And I guess, you know, the the English teacher in me sort of had that in mind when I was writing as well. It was like, let's yeah. kind of educate people. Let's, let's yeah. give them, you know, let's show them what it's really like and then, you know, it might help people understand a little bit better and, um, yeah. Because it, because, and I think people also, you know, forget. Like, and you said you you've gone through and you've you've dealt with pain post treatment. That cancer still follows you, even though you know, in your words, you've beaten it. it it's still there, and there's still follow ups, and there's still pain and side effects that you have you have to deal with. It that people that are you know in their twenties, thirties, of our age, they don't have to deal with what you've what you've had to to tackle as well. So I think to be able to give a voice to that is is um really important and powerful because have you experienced like how you said your health post treatment has you've had um issues and with your back and things like that has has that been challenging like yeah it it has been it's um yeah like I mean there's people out there like who don't have cancer who um have lived with chronic pain and you have to be really careful because it it can completely destroy you. It can bring you down and you've got to be really careful that that it doesn't do that to you. There's not I recently <laughs> I I've I've only had social media since my book came out. Um yep. I've never had it, so if anyone wants to be my friend <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. Um I um I recently put, uh, so I'm kind of like learning how that works and like watching yeah. what other people post up there. But, but recently, um, one of the things that I'm not sure, you know, you know, sometimes my friends who haven't had cancer, what they're not aware of is, so recently, you know, a certain date passed and that was the date when I was first diagnosed when I was a nine-year-old little kid. And every single year when that date rolls around, I I remember, okay, it's been another year. Like I have not had a single day where there's not been a reminder of the cancer stuff or, you know, someone that I lost. My year is filled with significant dates of, um, you know, funerals, friends, 
you know, I lost a lot of friends, you know, both times that I was on treatment and in between treatment and after treatment. So yeah, it's, it's really hard. Like it's, it's almost, and and it's a strange thing for things like loss to sort of always kind of be something that you're constantly sort of managing um, throughout your life. It's, it's, it's strange and it can be very hard. And it, and it is a tricky thing for people that I spoke to someone this morning and they said um, they'd only ever been to, they're the same age as me, and they said they've only ever been to one funeral. And I was like, what? And, you know, to me I was like, oh, my gosh, like only one? Um, yeah. I've been to, I, I, I stopped counting once it got over, I think I got up to like about 80-something and I stopped counting them and that was, that was when I was 19 or 20. So, and the deaths yeah. haven't stopped. So, um, yeah. Um, and to being, as you say, other people in their 20s, they're, they're not exposed to that and, it, and, it, and they don't quite understand, as you say, the triggers that you hold on a daily basis and daily reminders of, of what is life um, post a childhood diagnosis or, you know, an adolescent diagnosis of a blood cancer. And it, um, and I think as you've, you've said that it's important you've got those memories and and then to fill it with the joy and the take the control of this isn't this isn't I'm going to put this into a purpose that is for good not to overtake and be be overtaken to being in the shadow and the thing that brings me down yeah yeah and yet it's one of those things that yeah I do I have to be yeah it's almost like if you know when you go on a diet you've got to be really careful like not to mm. you know not to eat the tim tams um with me like I I do have to be really careful because you know, there, there are constant reminders of, you know, friends that I lost and awful things that I saw. They're always going to pop up for me. So in terms of making sure that, you know, I acknowledge those things, I also have to make sure that, yeah, I'm in control of the way that those things make me feel. And it's almost like, I, I think this should be everybody's mission anyway, but um, it's almost like making sure that I stay happy. Um, it, it, it is, it's like this daily little mission. Like what can I do to make sure mm. that the fact that my childhood was very unconventional, what can I do to make sure that I, you know, it's present day, I'm alive, I'm well. Um, there are so many wonderful things in my life. Let's let's be like, let's make sure we remember those things. Yes, you know, you're always going to be sad about some of the things that happened, but don't let them swallow me. Like don't, I can't, I can't let them fully swallow me. I've got to be, got to be careful with that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that that's so important. And I remember listening somewhere where they said, you know, mental health is something that actually it's, it's, it needs to be practiced and filled and have attention daily. It's not something that we focus on when things get really bad and, and we bandage it up. It's actually something that needs daily work. And as you've said, you've got to treat yourself, you've got to look after yourself on the daily so that you don't fall into those slumps or that when you do fall into them because they're a natural, you know, that it does happen in life. We all go up and down yeah, the waves. Really. But but when you but when you do hit that low point that the the bounce back is either quicker or softer for you and I think that's the practice of um supporting your mental health in a daily basis yeah absolutely 
There's a question I want to ask, and even though it is 20, you know, 2021, it is still quite taboo, and I think quite taboo in around, you know, the adolescent and, and you know, children with cancer and um, teenagers that have gone through cancer. But I, I want to ask you, and if you are comfortable, answer it. I would love to hear your opinion. But did you think about death and, and dying when, when you were ill? Yes. Yes, I did. I didn't... Um... I didn't talk about it with anybody and it's not because mm-hmm. there was nobody available to me for yeah. that. But, yeah, I, I did think about it and I – the strange thing was I wasn't – it never used to be sort of, oh, my gosh, I'm scared I might die. It was more practical like, oh, if I do die, like I wonder how much it's going to hurt and – I also mm. was, when I would think about it, I would be worried about um, my parents and my siblings and I, it would more be like, if I die, are they going to be okay? What's going to happen to them? And even with my friends, like I I was so lucky um, uh, like the second time that I was sick in high school, I had some brilliant friends and I, I got to immortalise some of them in the book, which was so cool. Mm. You know, I had these amazing friends and I remember thinking, what is going to happen to them <laughs> if I yeah. die? I wasn't there kind of going, oh, you know, what what's going to happen to me? Um, am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to go to hell? Um, it, it was more like, yeah. oh, gosh, it was more... Yeah, my my focus was on, gosh, like how how is everybody else going to cope? Because I mean, I could obviously see that me being sick, you know, it, it was a strain on people that were close to me. And I don't know if this makes sense, but I I always kind of feel like that I I'm kind of <laughs> it sounds so wrong. I'm glad that I was the sick one because mm. I think it would be so hard to watch somebody you love be really sick and be in pain and kind of just be on the sidelines. And, mm. I mean, I know you can be there for someone and, you know, I had, you know, like I said, my um, my friends, my family, they were awesome, like cheerleaders. They were yeah. amazing distractions and we got up to lots of mischief and silliness and things like that. But I always remember feeling really bad for them thinking, oh, my gosh, like they're watching this. Like with me, I'm like it's all happening to me, like it's all in my body and my body hurts. But I thought, gosh, it you know, it wouldn't be nice to watch, you know, I wouldn't want to have watched one of my siblings be sick and suffer and you know, like I, I mentioned, like I, I got bullied and things like that. You know, if, you know, say one of my brothers had been sick and, mm. you know, um, someone had called them a freak, I, I might have murdered them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I don't but know I do if that th- makes any sense. but No, it yeah. absolutely does. And I think that I sit in front of people um, and hear, you know, carers speak about how, you know that everybody's trying to hide their emotions and protect their emotions from one another because they go oh the patient you know the patient's going through this and it's so hard for them and it's such an it's so interesting for you to you know vocalize that you're actually doing the same thing looking at the people that are caring for you and that are in your network you're actually looking at them going oh wow it must be so hard to be on the other side and and I think that's 
it's beautiful to say, yeah, everybody's thinking the same. Everyone's, the same yeah, everyone's worried about everybody yeah. else, which like that's actually really beautiful. And like, I remember coming home from school because when I'd be at school, like I, I would be in pain, like I would be sick and all sorts of things. Um, uh, but, you know, I would smile and act like I, I was okay. And then I would get home sometimes and, you know, fall in a heap for, you know, half an hour because I'd been putting on this, hey, I'm yeah. okay. Like, don't worry about me. Like, look, I'm normal. Yeah. It's fine. You know, I remember my mother telling me, and to this day, like this, this breaks my heart every time I think about this. My mum told me that both times that I was sick that, you know, my mum's one of those people, she, every day of her life, she has two showers a day, has a shower in the morning and she has a shower before bed. And she told me that she would always cry every morning and every night. And she did it in the shower because if you cry when you're in the shower, you can kind of like conceal it, like you can hide it from people. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, And I remember the first time she told me, I was devastated. I was like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you, you know? And she said, well, she said we were just, you know, um, uh, like she told me that her and my dad, um, my dad's actually not alive anymore. And um, she said her and my dad, Mm. they actually sat down like when I first got sick and they said, okay, this this is bad. This is not great but we are going to keep moving forward and we're going to keep living life. Yes, you know, um, you know, I was really sick, but, you know, my, my brothers, my sister, like I don't think, I think they maybe got one or two days off school in the five and a half years that I was on chemo. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't, they didn't get any free mm-hmm. passes or yeah. they didn't stop doing the things that they were doing because I was sick. And I actually think that was really incredible that my parents that was their what that they got together as a couple and said okay it's just like you know in finding Nemo that whole like just keep swimming just keep swimming you know um that mentality of just keep going just keep you know even when it's really really hard even when it's like oh gosh we have to get through the next five minutes or the next hour but just keep going forward and perhaps that's why um, I was able to have that momentum for myself was that behind the scenes, you know, my family, we were all sort of trying to do that together, but all sort of doing like secretly, like sort of on our own little secret missions of let's just keep moving forward. And yeah. 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 And I think, yeah, you're right. It sounds like your parents, they, they made that pact. Go, okay, we're just going to keep this as normal as we possibly possibly can in an unnormal situation yes yeah and it's such a very common thing that I hear parents parents doing and I think you know being able to create that space of or depending on age of course of the child and or of the, the adolescent but to have those conversations too to be open and honest about how we are all feeling because as you've said and you've articulated everyone is feeling those or or worrying about dying or worrying about um what if the what ifs could be there and um yeah it is uh, even in 2021 us as a in an Australian society we're not very good at talking about death and I think that it's important to know that just because you talk about it doesn't mean it's going to happen yeah yeah Mm. absolutely um and it, it is it's anyone that's ever you know had a cancer diagnosis like 
cancer and death, they're, they're kind of like two things that hold hands, you know, like if you get cancer at some point, it, it's going to cross your mind um, yeah. and the mind of those close to you that, hey, like this might happen. And yeah, some people will handle it better than others and be able to articulate their feelings really well. Like, and, you know, I remember having one of my my friends in the book, she had this amazing like sense of humor, but a really sort of dark sense of humor. And I remember one day she said to me, she goes, you know, you're not allowed to bloody die. You know, you're not allowed. Like, I remember her just saying that to me and we were just laughing. And and that that was her way. And obviously she was awesome. But then, you know, you have other people where it's just too hard for them. And I I remember my parents saying that people would cross the street to avoid having to see my parents or talk to them when I was sick because they thought, oh, we'll have to ask, you know, about they'd have to get asked about me. Um, and I remember feeling really bad for my parents, like that people, mm. it was just too much for them, it was too hard, um, and that's because of the whole cancer like death thing like it just there's some people that you know fear does not um doesn't always bring out the the best in people um and uh yeah so and that's the thing I have heard that it's better to say something than nothing at all because for the person that you're speaking to or the, the person you're fearful of, the worst has already happened. Their loved one is being diagnosed. A catastrophic event has already happened in their life and their path has been their path is being changed. So there's nothing that you could particularly, you know, say that's going to to be worse than that. Mm. So even just saying how are you know, how are you or the simple of, you know, gosh, you know, I'm i I'm sorry, um, is sometimes yeah all all that needs to be said yeah and I remember like awesome people as well like sometimes saying what do you need me to do today do you want to talk about what you're thinking and feeling or do you want to be distracted today like and yeah what a great question I'd be like yeah let's let's talk about boys let's talk about who we've got a crush on today like um you know and then other times I would be like no 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 like my body really hurts and I kind of can't see out of my right eye and I don't know why. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, sometimes, yeah, when people are not sure how to be supportive, it's okay to ask someone what they need. And and sometimes, you know, there's been times where people have said, what do you need? And I'm like, oh, look, I really don't know right now. And then they've just taken the lead for me because, you know, I haven't been able to do it for myself and, I think, um, yeah, everyone just kind of does their best and, um, yeah. Absolutely. um, Yeah. (laughs) So what's your health like these days? How's it? How is it? Um, it's, it's pretty all right for someone who's about to turn 40, I reckon. (laughs) Um, I, um, I can't, um, my body can't make a baby. Um, I don't have a uterus. Um, and, uh, fertilities, um, it it is often an issue for, for the guys and the girls, um, when we grow up, I remember talking to, um, uh, oh gosh, he would love, he would love me to name him, but I'm not going to, (laughs) um, but I remember talking to a friend of mine and, and he actually said that he'd just been diagnosed and he was, I think 17 and, yeah, they asked him if he wanted to, you know, um, 
freeze some um to to go off in a room with a little cup and yeah. um, and and he he just said no because he just he said I was a 17 year old he's like 17 yeah. year old guys are not thinking oh wow I might want to have a baby one day um and and more when, worried about everyone's going to know what I'm doing in that room yeah <laughs> yeah so, yeah um yeah. Oh, and that. Yeah, that's that's a whole podcast for another time. Is the things that yeah. go on on adolescent wards in the kids' hospital. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of um, yeah. Like I, there's another survivor that I know, and yeah, she's um, yeah, she's facing like fertility issues and things like that, and yeah, people you know, who haven't had to be part of the cancer kind of world, um, they, they kind of don't, they don't realise that that it will be a problem for you when you're older. Um, and, um, yeah, so, yeah, as much as, um, you know, my body, I can't make a baby physically, I, that doesn't mean that I'm never going to be a parent. And, but uh, it is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Yeah, they well, know how they to don't. talk about as well, well. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, and it's it's a bit sensitive too. You know, I think yeah, just you know, people and making babies in general. I think society's a bit funny sometimes the way that we talk about these things. Like when a couple gets married, you know, within a few months they're asked, "Oh, so you're having kids?" And you think, "Well, hang on, just hold up a second there," um, yeah. because. You know, even if they've had cancer or haven't had cancer, um, you know, sometimes there's lots these of things. Factors. Yeah, there's lots of people who it's it's really hard for them to conceive, and you know, there's losses and things like that that are really hard. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is, and I think that, and especially for um, the females as well, that there isn't sometimes a lot of opportunity to 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 look at egg preservation or to look at things that then can preserve their fertility down the track. I know definitely, you know, years ago there wasn't options like that, but there, there, there are options now that do help preserve eggs, but it's, but still the side effects that then you have to go through and as to, as to, as to how life can um, lead down the track, it, it is, it is a subject that people really struggle with, I think also physically and mentally as well to, to have to say I, I can't bear a child mm. um and pe- people don't know how to touch and support that subject yeah well. it's um actually um I'll just give a little shout out I don't know if people will actually I shouldn't say if um but um there's a sh- I did acting classes with uh Tahina Tozzi when I was growing up and she's actually made a documentary, um, and I think it's called the the misunderstandings of miscarriage as well. And and I yeah, I only saw it recently, and I was like, wow, like there's there's conversations about these things that yeah, they're, they're not sort of happening. And I was really proud that she that she did that because in my mind, you know, she's I always remember her as this perfect model, and you know, she she's totally gorgeous and. Um, you know, I never would have thought that, um, yeah, that she would struggle with anything. Like she's beautiful. Mm. Doesn't that mean that her life is perfect? Like, perfect. It's, you yeah. know, like how awful is that, that I just made that assumption or oh, she's a beautiful person aesthetically. So therefore everything's wonderful. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she did a really incredible documentary. I think that's on Stan and, um, yeah, it sort of, she brought up a lot of those things and, um, 
yeah, she didn't. Uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I wish I'd got a chance to talk to her because, yeah, there's lots of cancer survivors who have um, fertility issues and we don't get a chance to talk about it and it's kind of, um, yeah, I, I remember actually being excited when I crossed paths with another female who she offered up a little fragment and I went, oh, hang on, she's like she's had some of the same problems as me and I was so relieved. I was like, oh, I'm not alone. Like, okay, yeah. Like it's, yeah. So, yeah, cancer certainly has um, a lasting impact um, yeah. and, um, yeah, but you can certainly, um, like, like I've done with, with my book, you can take charge of what that lasting impact is going to be and, and whether it's going to be one that's dark or whether it's going to be one that's got a bit of shine to it. And yeah, absolutely. And I think that you both perfectly just summed up almost my next question. And my next question <laughs> was, is that, you know, what's kind of your main your main message and what did cancer t- uh, teach you and are there any kind of golden nuggets you you wouldn't want to impart on somebody that's going through gone through or caring for somebody that's had cancer I think that was more than one question I- <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay hang on I'll start with the first bit that I heard you say so I Oh, I was so lucky. I when the book first got released because because I'm like I'm just a I'm I'm not a famous person or anything. Mm. And they said to me, you know, do you know anybody famous who could maybe interview you? And the only person that I I could think of that I you know I met lots of um, famous people doing charity work, but there was someone that I'd cross paths with who I thought would be available. And so I asked um, if there, there's a playwright called Lachlan Philpot, and he's this. In, incredible playwright and um he interviewed me and he actually pointed out to me so I didn't figure this out for myself so I just want to give him the credit for that he actually said to me that he felt that the main message of pretty much my entire book was that we all need to kind of keep check on our level of empathy as we interact with people in you know every aspect of our lives so in terms of the book having a main theme, as soon as he said it, I went, oh, wow, did I do that? And I'm like, I didn't yeah. plan that. But if if that's, and then since then, I've sort of looked back over at the book and gone, oh, wow, yeah, that that is what's in there. And um, yeah, and I think especially now, like with, gosh, everything that's gone on with the world and, and COVID and everything, I think empathy is more important now than ever. Like when you interact with someone, you you have no idea um, what is going on for them. Like you may be interacting with them on the day that they are about to break. Um, so you yeah. need to be careful what comes out of your mouth and the way that it comes out and mm-hmm. the way that you treat other people, um, the footprint that you leave, like, you know, like at the end of the day, like what footprint have you left? You know, if you've interacted with anybody, what have you left behind in the interactions that you've had with people? And, you know, do you need to do you need to check in with that and maybe just tweak it a little bit, maybe be a little bit more mindful of others? You know, I've often thought I wonder what would happen if everybody just just a little bit just turned up like the volume on the empathy yep. that they already have. I wonder what would happen if 
the whole world made an agreement all at once to go, okay, we're all going to like for the next week, everyone, let's just try and have a little bit more empathy. I've always thought that would be a really cool experiment, but I don't quite know how to organize that one. Yeah, look, (laughs) (laughs) you work on that, but I totally agree like to to connect and I, because I agree because to connect with somebody or to anybody that that cares about you um, as a person, as your whole person, truly just really does make a world of difference you know to you and um you're right if we all had empathy for one another for what other ones are going through experiencing and how that would have changed your approach to life and the life of that person that you're exchanging um you're in exchange with mm. yeah mm. and um i think one of the other things you asked about is you know advice to anybody that's currently on chemo or is caring for someone on chemo um I am so sorry that I don't have a magic wand for you. I, I would like to go, ta-da, and, like, pull one out mm-hmm. right now for all of you. Um, but, the like, I, I think that anybody who's in those situations, I actually have every confidence that right now they don't need my advice. I think that they're probably doing the best that they can. And you know what? Whatever your best is for today, like, that is good enough. Um, you know, um, if today is a day where you, uh, you've got to get on top of your pain management and you've got to, you've got to take the nasty Mm. hardcore drugs that make you feel funny, then look, that's what's going to take place today. If you've got to have chemo today and then, you know, end up puking later on, you know, you just have to do your best to get through it. And for those that are caring for people that are sick, um, I think, I think, yeah, your role is so, so important and, like I said, I, I don't have advice because I think um, anyone who is really sick or caring for someone who is really sick with cancer, um, I think they're already doing their best and they just need to keep doing it. That's all you have to do is just keep doing what you're doing, yeah, and it's okay, like, it seems bloody awful at the time, <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah. But you you're doing it. You're doing it right now. Like you're getting mm. through it. So, yeah, that's my advice. Well, thank you, and I truly appreciate you offering up your time today and you sharing your story and sharing your wisdom because uh, it's a it's an insight that not many people have and that not many people are exposed to. So, for you to sit here today and uh, shed that light, I am truly thankful. So, I couldn't thank you enough. Well, that's all right. Thank you, and I'm yeah, I'm so glad to connect with the Leukemia Foundation and. You, yeah, like the work that you guys do, yeah, keep it up, please. Thank you. Thank <laughs> There's you. lots of people that need you guys, so there yeah, is keep up the good work. Yeah, and we will also put in the show notes a link to Kirsty's book as to where you can purchase it, but Honey Blood is out now, so please go and purchase. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode today with Kirsty Everett. Kirsty, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with us here today and being so open and honest with your experience. It is such a unique story and just full of inspiration. Kirsty is one determined woman and one that will continue to be a voice for people living with blood cancer. 
If you are interested in reading more about Kirsty's story, don't forget you can read her memoir, Honey Blood. It can be found at your local QBD store or can be ordered from Booktopia. If you would like any more information on our service or on today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.